Hello and welcome back to the Cave Escape podcast. I'm Ashton Goolsby. And I'm Caleb Groves. And we're here again today to continue our discussion from last time on moral philosophy. Last time we talked about, uh, what was it exactly that they phrased it last time? Moral philosophy in virtue. Yeah, so last time it was moral philosophy in virtue. This time we're kind of continuing that a little bit, but looking more at moral philosophy and how it plays out in community. Which is, is something that we, I feel like sometimes neglect is... The getting your morality from the culture you're in, you need to have a culture that's building you up right. toward morality. You can't just do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the they talked about the like the community being that which builds up the habits and practices in you that like can like basically kind of make up moral philosophy. But they they even opened this section. I thought the this was a great synthesis at the beginning. Mm-hmm. As we have already seen, not only does moral philosophy depend upon a tradition of inquiry, but moral judgments also depend upon one's existing habits and practices. These require a community that must pass on habits and practices from generation to generation. Yeah. So the idea of your your morality is based off of the, the habits and the actions that you have as a person, but these are heavily influenced by who you're around, but that doesn't just, as I understand it, that doesn't just mean like the people you're physically just with all the time. It expands broader than that. Would that be fair to say? I think probably, yeah. But I think also something that we've lost is the actual like physical, like the local aspect of communities. Yeah. yeah. Uh, And like we have like online communities and stuff now, which are different. Um, but I do think that one of the things they talk about is, like, the importance of having a more physically local community of the actual mm-hmm. people who are physically around you. Yeah, being that, like, part of that enculturation. Which that's kind of what I mean. We think of work as being one of those. I mean, people you work with are part of your community. Mm-hmm. They're having an effect on you, but. I would argue, and I think they make the point in here, even though I can't find the exact page at this moment, they, they make the point that the church is the central one where your habits should be mm-hmm. shaped. Yeah. The idea of you need to f- have a f- physical location that you go to, that you meet with people regularly and spend time with them in the culture of church. Yeah. That is, and they even tie it back to the idea of piety, which we'll get into a little bit mm-hmm. later, yep. going back to things we talked about in our episode on piety, that's the foundation of the rest of what you do is having this this moral piety instilled within your habits and the things that you do and the importance of having that. And you can only really find that as a Christian or anywhere in Christ in the church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the whole, I think I think we talked about this in the piety episode but the like the only place that the piety can be developed really is in like your culture and the like the yeah. the culture that you live in in the society is all all of that is part of the enculturation i think they talked about mm-hmm. or is that paideia is the enculturation kind of a thing not piety but piety is a part of that enculturation because it's the kind of respect for history 
yeah. and your heritage and also Christ and Christianity and the church and God and all those things kind of fall under things towards which piety is directed. Yeah. And they also say you can't develop virtue in isolation from others. So you, you talk, talk, about yeah. the, talk about that idea of traditions and things of people past. You, it's not just even the people, which is what I was trying to get at a second ago. It's not just the people you're currently with in your community. Mm-hmm. It's even the ones before that who helped form the community you're in, which can extend to um, if your church, maybe the people who specifically planted that congregation, but then even people you read, such mm-hmm. as early church fathers, yep. like uh, Augustine, who you get into uh, Calvin, Aquinas, Luther, all those other people they're also informing your community because they help to form where where you are now. Yeah. So learning from the people you're currently with, but also I feel like as a culture now, we're so, we have this heightened sense of the now and especially things like youth, youth culture, focusing on the things now are relevant. Those mm-hmm. old things, they don't matter as much anymore, but they, they do, they influence where right. we even are now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even like what you said with the youth culture, that's there are some things that are like that become irrelevant and that's old and now that's just like not a thing that needs to be worried about anymore because now this thing is new and here's the new relevant yeah. thing. But I think then that gets like improperly applied to other things that are old. Yeah. And so then the, it just becomes it's old so it's irrelevant, which is incorrect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that happens quite often. <laughs> yeah. I also liked, I felt like they really tied back. You said we're talking about the use of gifts. You can use them one of two ways. You can use your gifts to build community with God, which is what we were designed to do. I mean, in the garden mm-hmm. you have, it says, uh, God walked in the garden in the cool of the day, implying he, he walked in the garden with Adam. So we, there was a community built there. So we can use our gifts and talents for that, or we can also use them for ourselves, which is right. not what we're created to do, which I felt like went back to something back, I, can't, I think it was uh, the second episode we did with Mr. Wilbur, where mm-hmm. he talks about the idea of use, using the things that you have wisely and that you have these gifts to share with others, which it, we're talking about gifts a little bit differently here, I guess. But mm, saying you, right. you, you yeah. each have different skills and things, and you're supposed to use them for others, yeah, and recognize when they have things that you need. But that also is a way of building community with God, because we're sharing with our brothers and sisters what we have, what we've been given by God, and hopefully we're using them to build things up for His glory. Right? Because I think I think kind of the way Mister War phrases it is like gifts are. Like God using us to bless other people. Yeah. That may not be like verbatim how he phrases it, but I think that's kind of like what he means. Mm-hmm. And so then other people are receiving blessings from God through our gifts mm-hmm. and through us. And so then that is kind of another way that you build the community with God. And like the community can be focused on God if people, if that's how everybody understands how gifts work and that's how the community is based. And the kind of, I think like they talked about, like the baker doing selling bread and doing his job out of self-interest 
or love for his customers mm-hmm. and that difference there. And so if everybody's doing their business out of love for their customer through God, then that creates a community that is mm-hmm. focused on God. Yeah. So that that's really where they heavily start out this section is talking mm-hmm. about building up a community <clears throat> building up a community where God is at the center and so you're you're surrounded by people who are building you up to pursue good and truth and beauty and, and virtue and piety mm-hmm. first and that is where more philosophy begins and is most influential but also keeping in mind as well that's where you're fed but also people rely on you to be there as well. Yeah. So there's the important aspect of I get things here, but it's not just a take relationship. It's a give and take. Mm-hmm. You receive, but you also have to contribute, which I would argue is why you should go out and find a church. Yeah. <laughs> you need to, you need somewhere where you're fed and don't just show up. I know Pastor Radley used to say this all the time. He said, show up 15 minutes early to church. Because he mm-hmm. said, you need to get there and you need to know people, but they need to know you because it's it's a community you've built where whether you realize it or not, people rely on you to be there and you you rely on them to be there as well because mm-hmm. there's things you get from them, there's things you supply to them and you yeah. you need them in, for morality and, I mean, Christianity as well. You, you have to have that community to start with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to their discussion of self-love and how that's or self-love and kind of self-interest like I was saying before Mm -hmm. and how that's like the primary motivator or it's seen as the primary motivator in today's society and culture. Yeah. Uh, And they said for Augustine, self-love has no place in the city of God. Self-love is another phrase for disordered love, putting the love of Mm -hmm. self, which could in principle be proper when ordered rightly ahead of love of God. And so that's, like I said, the primary motivator is self-interest and everyone's Mm -hmm. doing what's best for them. Yep. And so if you're running a business, you're going to do what's best for you and your business and you don't really care about your customers or the people in your community that you're providing a service to. I feel like part of that goes back to what we talked about last time with Freudian psychology. Because reading, when we had to read some of his stuff, and I haven't went back and looked at some of it again. I don't remember why recently. But him talking about the idea of everyone does things out of animal instinct and self-interest and selfishness. Mm-hmm. And that's what motivates the world. I feel like that's in that's changed some of the way we deal with each other. But I feel like also another thing is I feel like we equivocate. Well, I guess equivocate may not be the slight thing. I feel like we talk about self-love and we don't fully understand what we mean when we say, because there is a sense in which I feel like we should, we should love ourselves. Because, yes. I mean, you have the commandment, um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is an underlining assumption, I feel like, in that. <laughs> that you're, you you do love yourself. Yeah. But the, the command is then to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Mm-hmm. But we, we so often now focus on, well, I love myself first. And I'm only looking out for number one. And we kind of have lost sight of the 
love your neighbor as well. Yeah, we'll I think go, that's well, kind of... I, sh- I should love myself. Right. And the other guy, well, he can come along too as long as he doesn't hurt me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I think that's why they make the point uh, self-love, which could in principle be proper when ordered rightly. Mm-hmm. And they're putting that love ahead of the love of God, which is not ordered properly. Yeah, which goes back to Augustine again. Yes, yeah. It's like we were saying, I think it was last time, I, I may have been talking to somebody else, but the idea of, I think it was Augustine talks about the idea of you should love your wife and children and God, but the problem comes when you love them in that order or any other order where God is not at the top. It should be God above everything else and then your wife above everything else and then your children, and then you can start ordering things after that. But the problem so often in our lives, which was something in uh, the class we were having at church a couple weeks ago was pointed out was we all know God should be the first thing that we love. Mm -hmm. Yet how many of us actually live that out? Because we were asked, he he said, we all know the answer. What actually is the thing you love most? And people started throwing out things like, well, I love money or popularity. Once you're you're honest with yourself, you realize, well, I love myself more than God. And that's the self-love that's the problem Mm -hmm. is... Right. Loving myself first. It's not that you're not supposed to love yourself. Right. But when a lot of times when our culture, when TikTok people say, I'm, I'm, I'm practicing self-love, they're, I'm putting myself first is what they're really meaning. Right. So love yourself, yes, but in your proper place. Yeah. And I think a lot of those people who say they're practicing self-love are also, like there's an extent and a sense in which that is a good thing to be doing because a lot of that's also like in the context of like, health and like eating well and like taking care of your body yeah but it is it's like to as far as as far as that i think it's a good thing but because Mm of like the the greater philosophy that that's like that that's the context that's the context for that is that they're loving themselves first and that that's the first thing and so there are like good things and you can say no 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 no, that's actually a good thing to be doing Mm mm-hmm but really it's actually not because of the motivation and the actual thought process behind it and the order of your loves. Yeah. I'm thinking more of like, cause you pointed out like there's health reasons, like make sure you're eating healthy, make sure you're getting enough sleep, yeah. make sure that you're not overfilling your schedule. The, those kind of things. Yeah. Those are important, but you see way too often in our culture, I would argue people who just say, cause I, we used to have people when I was working fast food, that would say, I'm not coming in today because I'm needing to love myself and take a mental health day. Hmm. What they meant by that was, I don't feel like coming in today, and so I'm skirting my responsibilities. And it, it, it was something like, this person would just do this on a consistent basis. Right. And I'm like, if you are skirting your responsibilities, you're, you're not loving your neighbor as you love yourself. Right. By telling me five minutes into your shift, hey, I'm not coming today because I essentially just don't feel like it. Mm-hmm. The The problem there, which I feel like sometimes is hard for us to get down out of frustration, is you're loving yourself improperly. Yeah. If you need those things, then find a way to do it, but be considerate of the ones that you're also living in community with at your work. Mm-hmm. If you need to remove yourself from the situation, remove yourself through the proper channels, but don't just dump it on somebody else and make it their problem now. Right. And I feel like that's too often what we mean by self-love. 
yeah. as well. I'm putting my my needs above yours. Mm-hmm. That's not maybe even you think about the sinking of the Titanic. The policy was women and children first. Well, they didn't follow it, but <laughs> the, the the understood assumption was put the other people on the boat before yourself, and right. that was just kind of the assumed thing mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. But we've now, especially I would think since like the 60s and sexual revolution, whatever else yeah. went on in there, my needs and my desires supersede yours. Yeah, and that's, I think, contributed to the breakdown of the community and like the Christian community specifically. And being that now like businesses are just trying to make more money. And so they just try and get bigger and bigger and then they blow up and then you have like these huge chains and they're no longer like local businesses that are dealing with like their individual communities. They're a part of a chain. And so then, because the difference between chains and local businesses is that a local business can have a relationship with the people that are actually in its physical location. Bring back the mom and pop shops. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so when you're able to actually be a part of your community Mm -hmm. and you shift your mindset from, I got to do what's best for me, Mm -hmm. which for a lot of people can mean making more money, which is also it like an, an additional incorrect view. Which they actually, they critique that in here. Yeah. But when you do that, then you're able to actually use, like we were saying, use your gifts for your community and you're able to help your community and then build that more real, actual beneficial community rather than this chain, which is run by this dude who's like, on the other side of the country and you just have to do yeah. whatever the policies are and you don't actually like care about the specific community because it's all about let's make our chain bigger. Well, then they, uh, they do also make the point with that. They said that too often is the goal. The goal should be like you said to look out for your customer, get them the best product that you can engage with them, build a community in the area you're located. But he also says those things should come as an indicator of how well you're doing. If right. you are doing your job well, you're probably going to be successful on the business end of it. Yes. Because people are going to want to come and they're going to want to spend money and do business with you more because they go, that's a reputable person. That person actually cares about me mm-hmm. and what I do, which is something like with, back back in the summer, my car got destroyed. I got, I got hit and uh, literally flipped over on its lid and yeah. slid. Uh, crazy ordeal. But I had an easier time dealing with my insurance guy who was local. Hmm. So we went to him, we talked to him versus her insurance lady that hit me was his chain somewhere in Texas. I could never talk to the same person. Hmm. They didn't care about my problem. They were like, well, I get off in 30 minutes. I can't really help you out right now. Yeah. And so it was very much that. But this guy wasn't, wasn't even something that should have concerned him. But he helped me out way more than they did. Mm-hmm. And so I actually ended up having to do their work for them because they just didn't care. Right. But I had a guy close to me who did care. My dad said, that's why we will never, I never really want to leave this guy. Yeah. Because he's here. I know where he is. He's nice. We can call him up. He's very helpful. But any chain is not going to do that Mm -hmm. because they don't care. Their shift is eight to four. Yeah. Once four hits, they're done and some other guy's going to come take it over. And he doesn't care either. He gets off at 10. So again, that idea of just building community with where you are and then the other things will probably follow from it but don't make the money your primary goal yeah (laughs) just something we know and we just do it because we're 
sinful, confused people. Yeah, because really making money your primary goal is making yourself your primary goal. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that, but yeah. Yeah. We should probably talk about uh, the separation of church and state because they made a huge deal of that in this one. They talked very extensively about it. Yeah, that was that was a pretty big deal, and it's also something that I'm not 100% sure, because it's a big issue, mm-hmm. how exactly, I mean, I agree that it's a problem, but it's right. also one of those, it's been a problem for thousands of years yep. since the Roman Empire. Well, who's more in charge, the, the emperor or the pope? <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's, I feel like it's not something that we can necessarily resolve in 35 for sure minutes not. or whatever. <laughs> Um, but it is, I think it is an important question. Mm-hmm. What, how do they relate to each other? Yeah. I, I liked the way that they kind of clarified what was originally meant by separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also I think I'm pretty sure that the phrase separation of church and state doesn't actually come from the constitution. I think it comes from like Jefferson's letters or something like that, but it's still, there's still like the concept of those things being separated is in the constitution. But what was meant by that is more not an exclusion of religion from the government, but it was to prevent there being like an official religion of the country, which would then inhibit religious freedom for people who ascribe to different religions. Because that was part of the issue with England was that there was, you had the church of England Hmm. and you had, and then like you had even before that there was, Queen Elizabeth was Protestant, and then you had Bloody Mary, who's Catholic, and then just killed all the Protestants, and then they went and killed all the Catholics because mm-hmm. of the you had no separation of church and state, which ended up being super problematic. Well, the the problem they even had before that was um, going back to is Henry the Second, who very early on he had um, Thomas Becket was one of his one of his friends. He was a Saxon, who the people didn't really. The noble class didn't like that he had been brought up, but the common people liked that they had a Saxon kind of there. They kind of liked him. They kind of hated him. But he was a really good friend of the king. Well, the king made him archbishop when the archbishop of Canterbury died, assuming, well, he's one of my subjects and friends. I then will be over the church. But then the thing for the rest of Becket's life was he's a subject of the king, but he's also the head of the church of England, of which the king is part. So it's this question of, we've got the government over here, and technically this guy's a citizen of the country, but he's also head of the church, and the king is in the church. So who who has the greater power is another thing that kind of enters into it a lot of times. Yeah, yeah, that was another thing they talked about a lot, was the difference in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, and yep. how like we're citizens of America, but we're also citizens of God's kingdom, and we have to obey God's laws. And so there's this interesting duality of citizenship that all Christians partake in. They kind of point to that a little bit here when they say, in this way, the constitutional principle of the separation of church and state, which was intended to secure religious freedom, going back to what you said, has -hmm. become the means of secularizing the American mind so that the churches have lost all control over the religious formation of the people. So he was saying, right. kind of like you said, in America specifically, we can talk about, mm-hmm. the idea was what you said a minute ago, we're we're founded on Christian principles, but we're not going to pick, is it Methodist, is it Baptist, Protestant, 
Anglican, Catholic. We're just going to say we're Christian. We're founded upon these basic principles, but we're not going to pick one explicitly, and we're not going to judge theology ourselves. Well, I also think it wasn't even like the government was based on Christian principles, but it wasn't like Christianity is the religion of the government either. Yeah, yeah. Like it was like they talked about the like religiously neutral state and that being different than an entirely secular state. Yeah, but even even back in Revolutionary War times, each state pretty much had its own set religion. So certain yeah. certain of the colonies were saying this colony is an Anglican one. This one is a Roman Catholic one. This is a Baptist one. So it was more of their way of saying we're not going to pick somebody's side in this argument. Keep doing on your state level what you're doing. We're just going to kind of sit okay. back. I've always thought of it more as not necessarily a not picking a denomination, but not picking a religion. Because all those are just denominations of a religion in my mind, because those are all still Christian. Yeah. But even if you think about, I mean, I had somebody ask me the other day what religion somebody else was, and by that they meant, from the context we knew this person, we obviously knew they were Christian, but the question was more of what what is their background? Are they Presbyterian? Are they more Baptist? Where, mm-hmm. where, do, where do they fall on the spectrum? So we even use it that way today. Interesting. It's just got to be a little bit more dated in our way of thinking i guess okay i've just never heard it used like that what did you what what was your point you were gonna make with the separation of church and state the point that i was making uh it goes so they have this quote this history of the separation of church and state like not meaning the disappearance of christianity from public life uh but the history of this reflects taylor's affirmation of a notion of secularity that manages the religious and metaphysical philosophical diversity of views including non- and anti-religious views, fairly and democratically. So it's more like this thing that we have all these different viewpoints that are either religious, non-religious, and then under-religious having all the different kinds of religion, and we're able to have all of these in conversation with each other within the government but not necessarily ascribing to a particular one, but also not excluding all religion entirely. Okay. So people now interpret separation of church and state exclude all religion entirely. Yeah. Yeah. But what they're saying, I think, is still have religion involved Mm -hmm. in some way because it's a very important part of human life and, like, who we are. And, like, like we've been saying, the church is a huge, important aspect of the community necessary for building virtue and for like enculturating our people but they wanted to prevent the government from being Christianity specifically is the one and only true religion and you have to ascribe to this religion by law that's what they were wanting to prevent because that would be wrong and I think not helpful to building a good society but I mean, also, I would, I would think, what other religions were there at the time that were prevalent here? Right. That's a good question that I was just thinking about as you were saying that. I hadn't really thought about that before. But either way, their their point in the book here was whatever was originally meant by it, <clears throat> whatever was originally meant by it, 
we've taken it now to an extreme that is not helpful. They acknowledged to an extent there has to be some some appeal to religion somewhere because I mean we even have by God we're given these unalienable rights. Well, they're appealing they're appealing to some higher being somewhere. Right. They're just not they're not explicitly stating specifics on what that is necessarily in a government context, but we've taken it now, like you were saying, to the extreme of religion has nothing to do with any of this. And right. so we've lost the formation of the church over the community, which kind of goes into the idea, which they kind of talk about later, of we we look we look at religious information kind of as less rational. We oh, yeah. we almost appeal to and I even know Christians that do this, look at the science and look at what the government's putting out, and they try to make the Bible then kind of fit with it. Yeah. Versus the Bible, first and foremost, should be informing our thoughts and opinions on things. And we reason through what we were given from other people from a biblical perspective, not the other way around. Right, which is still, I mean, even to me, that just feels really tricky. And there's like some like cognitive dissonance in my head when we talk about religiously informed thoughts being as rational as like regular rationality as we normally think of it. But then like they made the very good point um, that kind of helped clarify that a little bit for me where they talked about there's like the rationality that's like mathematical rationality. And so, like, science and all of that, and that's kind of all that's born out of the Enlightenment. And that being the the standard by which we judge whether or not something is true or real. But then you have all these other things that don't really fall under the category of science and math. Like, how are humans supposed to interact with each other? And what are basic human rights that every living being possesses and where do they get yeah. that right yeah and those aren't things that you can answer through just pure math and science and so and for thousands of years we've just gotten those truths from the bible yeah and christianity and our knowledge of god is where we get the answers to those questions and so if you entirely just say well religiously informed thought is not actually very rational, then we don't have any way in which to actually answer those questions yeah. really at all, I think, but definitely not answer them well. But it still feels weird to me to say that it is rational because it feels more like a faith thing. Mm-hmm. And faith, I think, is also probably more rational than we say it is. And so that's just kind of... This is just kind of me struggling with I was raised in this kind of a culture and this is how my mind has been trained to work and think about things. And I am realizing that that's how I think about it. And I don't believe that that's accurate anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's so like ingrained in how my brain operates and processes things that it's very weird to try and think about. Yeah, I guess that is that is true. I mean... It is a complicated thing to think about anyway. It, mm-hmm. There's a lot of moving parts in it, and it's, again, it's something <laughs> It's something that for literally thousands of years has been a point of contention with 
from the Roman Empire back to mid Middle Ages specifically. We I'll note it in England. You can see it all the way even before Henry VIII took over the Church of England, and then probably a little bit worse after he did. Well, then there's a question of if he's the head of the church and the state, then how on earth is he supposed to do both at once? Why does he have the authority? It It is a confusing issue, but the, the underlying point being that of the church has to inform our morality. The state can't, if, especially if it's religiously neutral, cannot give us our views on morality. We need the church for that, and I feel like that's a place where the church is lacking. I mean, they point out when Henry VIII took over the Church of England and they became they became Protestant, you had these monasteries that were fulfilling so many tasks right. for the community, going back to community again. The monasteries were in charge of education. They were in charge of alms for the poor. Um, hospitals were often located in monasteries. Mm-hmm. They were... They made like they yeah. provided food for everybody. Yeah, so you have the church and these monks and the monasteries as the center of most communities. And once Protestantism took over and they were shut down, there's this void that has to be filled somehow. And I would say even today, it seems just after going through some of this, we have this void that has been filled by the state that should be the, and traditionally was the church's job in the Roman Catholic Society of England. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's something that we we need to find a way to get the church back to being the ones that are like the the hub of the community. Yeah. The community looks to us because that's what we're called to do is to care for our community. Mm-hmm. They, we now look, well, the state will take care of them. The church's job is to take po- care of the, the poor, the orphan, the widowed, yeah. the sick. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's a big downfall in our society. Yeah. Which also kind of leads into they talk about there's there's ways that we avoid dealing with. Like we, we, we don't want to do those things because they're hard, but then once we fall into the sins, there's there's excuses almost that we kind of use to get out of dealing with yeah. the fact that we're even doing something we shouldn't be doing. Mm-hmm. Which would include like not doing something we are we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, sins of... Commission and omission. Things yes. that we, we do wrong and things that we don't do that we should do. Mm-hmm. And they talk, don't they talk about two different ways we avoid sin, right? Yeah, I'm trying to see what exactly they said. Oh, here it is. Uh, they said the, the first way is to deny moral standards, which is something that we're really good about doing today. <laughs> well, who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? I can do what I want. Yeah. Um, and then the second way they said is, um, it says it's prevalent among Christians specifically today, and Christ warned us that this was going to happen. He said it's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy pretends to uphold a moral standard, but in reality it disregards the standard. So we either appeal and say, well, that you, who are you to tell me what's moral? Morality is questionable here. Or we completely redefine what the moral standard means, and we keep doing the thing while saying we shouldn't do it, but well, what I'm doing doesn't apply. Yeah. And a lot of televangelists fall in that category. <laughs> Which is why they, they even note, if you if you ever, if the media gets a whiff of there's a pastor somewhere or somebody who's professed to be a Christian that gets caught in any type of sexual misconduct or s- slights somebody in a way even, 
or has an exuberant amount of money that they do something selfish with, they really hone in on them for that. And it's mm-hmm. because the the media, while it may be corrupt and whatever else, it recognizes this hypocrisy present in the church. Yeah, There's so many people using it in their position for personal advantage if they're higher up in it, but even Christians arguing one thing and doing it themselves yeah, and then trying to explain why what they've done is actually okay. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing is that that ends up kind of being a point for the people who argue that the basic human motivation is self-interest because they just oh, yeah. point and say, see, they're just acting out mm-hmm. of self-interest. And the difference is Christians just deny that that's what they're doing mm-hmm. and that they deny that that's what the basic motivation is. And they say, no, 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 that's wrong. So we're not going to do that. But then they still go and do it. So see, and well, so I do also think that there is a sense in which our flawed sinful tendency is toward the self-interest, Oh, for which sure. is, which is where the hypocrisy comes in is we are all fallen sinful creatures who want to put ourselves above God, but we're preaching that that's wrong, mm-hmm. which they, they also go on to point out, they said the struggle with sin is real. It's a real thing. Mm-hmm. And as Paul says, I, I do that which I do not want to do, and I do not do that which I know I should do. I'm paraphrasing. Right. But that if, I mean, even if you look at your own life, there's so many things that when you do them you, on the other side, something it works out horribly, and you just go, why on earth did I do that? I knew that I shouldn't have done the thing I did. I was being selfish. And so that's just everywhere in what we do. But the difference to the culture is because we preach this message when we get caught doing it, it, it is hypocrisy. And mm-hmm. it looks yeah poor in the church, but we're all guilty of it. Yeah. And I wondered, is that something maybe we just don't we don't acknowledge enough our own sin maybe is that a shortcoming on our part i wonder this is just a thought that hit me is what a shortcoming though do, do we preach too much of this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong and i guess is it more of when we get caught trying to cover it up it's the difference of getting caught in a sin that you've been trying to cover it up or sinning and then going, yep, I messed up. Oh, and yeah, I see. Confessing. Which mm-hmm. I, is that something I feel like they talked about in here a little bit? I don't really remember them talking about that, but I've definitely, like, I see that because if you have, like, a pastor who's been embezzling money or whatever, I don't know if that's the correct word for church context, but essentially stealing money from the church, then and he's been doing that secretly and then it's uncovered and then there's this big scandal, then that's a lot different than somebody, a pastor maybe having like an inappropriate relationship with a woman. That's not necessarily like all I mean, if he's actually committing adultery, then he's, he's already covering it up. But like, I think uh, Matt Chandler, I think had this happen to him where he wasn't like, he didn't do anything wrong, but it was kind of uh, the board at his church was a little bit, sketch about his relationship with this person. He was like, Hmm. I'm stepping down for a time and I'm adjusting this thing and I'm repenting of this. I didn't want to allow this to go any further or be cause any problems. And I see how this could be a problem. I'm stepping down for a little bit. And so then, and that's a lot different. And I think communicates a very different thing to the culture than somebody who's caught covering it up. Yeah. 
I definitely think it does. Because that's even something as part of our liturgy at the church I attend is we have a confession of sin at the beginning, and the, um, our pastor always begins with, uh, we'll see if I can remember exactly what the words are, but um, he basically says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and um, he's faithful to for- forgive. Faithful and just. Yes, faithful and just to forgive our sins. I don't remember what passage that's from. Um, but the concept of, if you if you say that you don't have sin and Proverbs deals with this, you look like a fool. Mm-hmm. Because you are one. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we as Christians, we're part of what Christ brought us through salvation is in his death and resurrection is we can say that we are sinners and still rejoice. Yeah, I did that thing, but I don't have to wallow in the sin anymore because I'm forgiven of it. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, also go and say no more. Right. Don't keep committing the same sins over and over that grace may cover them, but we have the rejoice. We can rejoice because Christ has paid it all and we're forgiven ultimately. Yeah. And they, they bookended it very well, beginning and ending of the the key to helping our society recover from some of the the troubles that we're experiencing in it is a recovery of Christian moral philosophy mm-hmm. to have this moral piety underlining. And it needs to begin with educating children. We need to be raising children in this yeah. to know and love what's good, true, and beautiful, and to recognize recognize sin in their own lives and how to deal with it, but also what things they ought to pursue instead and mm-hmm. gear them that way. Yeah. So that kind of brings us to the end of this chapter um, and our conclusion of more philosophy. Mm-hmm. Next time we'll be going more into divine philosophy, which is the... Also metaphysics. Me? Yes, metaphysics. So divine divine philosophy, metaphysics, which is the the final stage of philosophy as they, they've outlined it here. It's the, mm-hmm. the third one, kind of the culmination. Um, so as always, we'll have a synopsis up on the blog. Uh, please leave us, please leave us questions. If you have anything, um, we appreciate all the feedback we can get. Yes. <laughs> um, but until, until next week, thank you for listening. Take care. Mm-hmm.